0: Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what's smart? Sitting out the third night of drinking at Sundance. Well, Kyle didn't totally sit out. I sat it out though. I'm like a basketball player. I can only do back to back I can't do three games in a row. I'm old. You know what else is, is smart? When job sites don't overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. ZipCruiter.com slash BS. Go there. There's a place that just find people with the right skills for your job. They actively invite them to apply. Right now, my listeners can try ZipCruiter for free at ZipCruiter.com slash BS. ZipCruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, look at our friends from State Farm. Whether it's a friend helping you drive across country to start a new job or a neighbor helping you move into your new home. A little help can help a lot. Let State Farm help you protect your car and home with your very own agent. Here to help when you need them. Talk to an agent today at 1-800-STATE-FARM. State Farm. Here to help life go right. We're also brought to you by The Rewatchables, where we have proof of life. Me and Chris Ryan, our vanity project for The Rewatchables podcast. Even if you've never seen this movie, I urge you to listen to this podcast, which is coming out I think midnight tonight uh, because we, we make a case why it's one of the most underrated movies of this century. I want you to listen to it. It's a good one. The com, a buzz right now with Anthony Davis trade speculation. We're going to get into that right, uh, right after we get to uh, our friends from pro jam. And then right after that, one of the best directors of the last 30 years, Steven Soderbergh been dying to have him on. It finally happened. We did it at Sundance. Uh, that is coming up. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. So we're here at Sundance. We've, we've been here um, all weekend. Just came to check it out. It's a great place. It's 30 year anniversary of Steven Soderbergh hitting it big here. And he's going to come on later to talk about that. But I hadn't been in a while. I had forgotten. um <laughs> It's a lot of the film industries here. Obviously you got documentaries, movies. It's a free for all for people that love movies. You're constantly hopping in Ubers and Lyfts, trying to get to this screening or that screening. It's really fun to be in a theater when, uh, when they're premiering something and everybody's there there's just a certain energy to it there's a lot of people usually rooting for the movie and it, and it's a uh, it's a good experience we came down you know we like to check this stuff out i haven't been here for so long i uh i forgot about the energy that's here that's really uh really kind of inspiring and just a lot of Canada goose jackets Kyle Canada, there's just uh, Canada goose all over the place, and to the point where if you don't have a Canada goose jacket, you uh, you you feel like there's something wrong with you. So there's that, and then you have um, the the way that the bodyguards they have, not the bodyguards, like the bouncers, they have all these clubs. The space is never big enough, like for these little parties and house parties and events. And they just don't care who you are. And once they fill it to like 45, 50, 100, whatever the number is, it could be like Brad Pitt and George Clooney online. And they'll just, there'll be some bald bouncer just be like, fuck you guys, you're not getting in. So um, it's it's really, a, it's a weekend controlled by the uh, people letting, the bouncers letting parties, people into the parties and uh, and the Lyft and Uber drivers have the most power for the entire weekend. I remember like eight years ago, I wrote a mailbag and about Sundance saying how Sundance mad was my new favorite kind of mad, where you just have these, you know, these movie executives in their fifties who are just in disbelief. They can't get into a party and they're just screaming at this bouncer. Who's a foot taller than them. Uh, very enjoyable. A lot of comedy here at Sundance. We, um, we, we went out late Friday and Saturday night and um, I turned 50 this year. It wasn't a great idea. So, Nephew Kyle and I, on Sunday, I really wasn't in great shape. I was afraid to go to a screening and, uh, I didn't want to be in a movie theater and just feel like I was trapped there or get overheated or whatever. Nephew Kyle and I watched the entire Ted Bundy documentary on Netflix. It was four hours. We banged it out. It, uh, it was, it was, it was riveting. It was really well done. I just have one thing to say about Ted Bundy. Um, They they keep talking about how handsome he is. And I feel like he's serial killer handsome. I don't think he's really handsome. But I think compared to the other serial killers, like if you're comparing him to John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer and, uh, and Charles Manson, like, yeah, he's Brad Pitt. But he's serial killer handsome. He's not actually, like, handsome. Like, JFK Jr. was handsome. This guy was, like, fine. He, you know, decent looking guy. Um, but I, I think serial killer handsome and athlete funny are related together. <laughs> Where you talk about like these athletes, like the guy's hilarious. He might be a comedian. It's like, no, nah, he's funny for an athlete. He's not actually funny. You know, people who are funnier like Dave Chappelle. You're, you know, Blake, Blake Griffin's funny for an athlete. He's athlete funny. He's not really funny. Charles Barkley is the only athlete we've had over the last 30 years. That was actually legitimately funny. Um, but I think athlete funny and serial killer handsome are uh, are two of my favorite ones. So if you have any more like that, email them to the mailbag at therigger.com because I, I was thinking how huh, this would be a, a fun gimmick for the pod. I want to talk about Anthony Davis really quick. Um, the trade request finally came today. We could feel this coming for a while. Um, we wrote about it. Kevin O'Connor wrote about it late December. We have talked about it on this podcast multiple times. The seeds were really planted from the moment he hired Rich Paul. Who runs Clutch, which also happens to be the agency that um, I guess represents LeBron James, probably more than that. But um, LeBron James plays for the Lakers. (laughs) Anthony Davis wants to be in a big market with a team that wants to win a championship. Um, You can kind of see where this was headed a few months ago. What's interesting is the Lakers have basically a two week window here to get them because. If it goes past the trade deadline, then the Celtics can get involved. If, dude, thanks to this stupid rule where you can't have two designated player contract, max contract guys in the same team. They have Kyrie Irving already. The only way they could get Anthony Davis is to trade Kyrie Irving for him, which they're not going to do. So the Lakers have two weeks here to basically overpay for Davis to make sure they get him. Because once we get to the summer, it's just going to be a lot, lot tougher. They're not going to have um the same kind of leverage that they do now and if you look around the landscape everybody's coming up with all right what are the what are the fake Anthony Davis trades out there we talked about one on a podcast a couple of weeks ago Ben Simmons and you know maybe the Miami future first round they have from Miami and maybe one other thing for Davis i think is a really interesting trade that should be explored by both teams because if you're Philly and you have Embiid and Davis as your anchors for the rest of the decade, um, you could argue that that gives you a better chance to win a title than Embiid and Simmons. I actually, actually I, I just argued it. Um, the catch for them would be, would he wanna stay? Would, you know, there's all this agency stuff in there too, because Embiid is CAA, Anthony Davis clutch, is that gonna work? Ben Simmons is already there as a clutch guy, two clutch guys getting traded for each other. So even though it's a fun one to talk about on paper, I don't know how realistic it is, especially because um, of wherever the hell the Jimmy Butler thing is, is going to go. I think one thing that I haven't, I haven't been surfing the last couple surfing the internet the last couple of hours, but one thing is if new Orleans trades Davis, it also really makes sense for them to trade drew holiday and just completely blow it up and start over. And ironically, even though he came from Philly and was the centerpiece of the trade that launched the process where they got two first round picks for him where, where uh, they ended up getting, I think Nerlens Noel and I can't even remember what the other one was, Michael Carter Williams. Now maybe they took Mike, whatever they got, they got two first round picks for him, but I actually think he makes a ton of sense coming back to Philly because if they could figure out, they could put Fultz, um, Zaire Smith, the Miami pick, whatever they need to to get Drew Holiday. He's locked up on a great contract. And he's actually a perfect guard for that team because he can guard the other team's point guards. He's an incredible defender. Um, But then on offense, he likes to play off the ball, which is good for Simmons. So if New Orleans is doing this correctly, you'd want to trade Davis and you'd want to trade Drew Holiday and you'd want to bottom out and you'd want to get a top five pick. Um, And you probably want to trade Meritich too. So um, we'll see if they can do that. They have, you know, one of, I think, the most controversial organizations. They're owned by the Saints owner. They've had Del Demps as their GM this entire decade. He was the one that made the Chris Paul trade that David Sturt hated so much he vetoed, which led to some good uh, Grantland pieces for me. But um, I don't know, Del, Del Demps, I don't know if I don't know if this is the guy I'd want pulling all the strings here, is trying to figure out the future of the franchise. And the other thing is, do you even trade him now? Do you just wait till the summer? um, If you keep him and he's playing, that actually might hurt your lottery pick. So, um, it, it what in my opinion, what makes the most sense is to try to trade him over the next two weeks and try to have the team bottom out in a big way. All right, so what's that trade? I think with the Knicks, if you get Porzingis back, the Knicks made a big deal about how they want to be in this. Um, you can't, the Porzingis is, you know, he's been in the league a couple of years now. New Orleans can't trade Davis for somebody who also might leave. Um, they've got to turn him into draft picks and pieces of guys who are actually stuck there, which is why the Boston Celtics package is so appealing, like whether they want to put Tatum in it or not. And, the summer, but they have a bunch of draft picks and a bunch of like ways for the Pelicans to kind of control who's on their team. So I, to me, it's really Lakers or Boston. I I think anybody else, it's just too risky because again, he has the chance, not this year, but next year he could leave and he's made it pretty clear. He wants to play for championships the difference of making 175 million versus 240 million. He doesn't really care or whatever, whatever those numbers are. And he, he's really motivated by the titles. I think the red flags are, he's a little trouble staying on the court. He um, kind of had one foot out the door this whole season, which in general is a policy. I don't love if you're, if you're supposed to be one of the three best players in the league, which talent wise he is, um, I kind of wanted him to do what he did last year, where he just put the Pelicans on his back after boogie went out and he's like, fuck this. We're not, I'm not going down like this. I'm we're making the playoffs and I'm going to kick ass. Um, did he's statistically has been really good this year, but I don't feel like it's, it doesn't feel like it's a get on my back type situation. It feels like it's headed for an uneasy inning, And if you're in new Orleans, this is basically the future of basketball at stake for you now, because if you can't keep this guy um, and the reasons you can't keep him are because it's a small market. Um, you weren't able to build the right team around him. And the basketball has just never really succeeded there. You can see it in the games. You can see the empty seats. They had barely any media fall on them. Uh, New Orleans is a football town through and through. And there's just probably better locations for this team if you can't keep Anthony Davis. So you got that hanging over you too. This is a really important trade for them to say the least, because if they screw it up, I think it creates a path for them to leave and go to Seattle in the next three to five years or Vegas or wherever they might end up. Um, They have to nail this trade. Last time they didn't, they did not nail the Chris Paul trade. It didn't work. And they lucked out because they won the lottery and they won Davis. And if they had gotten the second pick in, instead of the first pick, they get Michael Kidd, Goldcrest or Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal would have been nice, but, uh, but they really lucked out because that Chris Paul trade did not work out. So, all right. So what do the Lakers have to give up? In my opinion, Ingram and Lonzo have to be in the trade. I think they both have to be in the trade. If you want to get them now, you have to overpay. So, They're not going to care about first-round picks because the moment they trade Davis to the Lakers, they become a top six or seven team. So that pick's not going to matter. And then you don't care about 2021 or whatever because you know he's going to be there for a while. So you probably want the picks to be as late as possible, like 2023, 2024, 2025. You want like two from those years. And you have to get Ingram and you have to get Lonzo or I'm not doing the trade. Kuzma, who... The Laker fans love, um, he's not that good. He's 24. I think he kind of is who he is. He's 19 and six a game when he's taking a lot of shots. Not a great three-point shooter. Defensively, eh. I don't think he's ever an all-star. I think Ingram and Lonzo both have chances to be all-stars. And, uh, you know, I've said this a million times. I'm, I'm on the front seat of the Lonzo bandwagon. I love Lonzo. I still believe in Lonzo. If I can get Ingram and Lonzo and some picks down the road and expirings, um, that's where I want to be if I'm the Lakers. I mean, I'm sorry, if I'm the Pelicans. And even better, if I can dump a contract from next year, because they have – And now, if I'm the Lakers, I'm like, I'm not taking more any contracts beyond the Davis contract. But if I'm the Pelicans, I'm at least trying to dump, like, the Solomon Hill contract on them or something like that. This is a big deal, though. I actually – I went back and – tried to figure out just what the parallel this is where you have somebody who is a top five guy or at worst top three guy at best, depending on if he's healthy and he's happy, just becoming available. So I went back, I looked through all the guys who have been a top three MVP so meaning they either finished first, second, or third place before they turned like 28. And it's just not a long list of of guys who have been traded. If you go backwards, like Will Chamberlain got traded. Will was selfish. You can read my book for more. Um, Will got traded like right after. He was averaging like 40 points a game, he got traded. Kareem got traded in 1975. That was the first kind of modern basketball trade where you had somebody saying... I'm leaving next year. You should trade me now. Very similar to this. And Kareem was, I mean, he's one of the four best players of all time. I had him third in my book. LeBron's probably passed him, but, um, got traded like at his apex. I mean, he would, Kareem was unbelievable when he got traded. He was the best player in the league and it wasn't close. Um, and that, you know, they ended up getting the, uh, the classic four quarters for a dollar trade. Um, Moses Malone got traded, which anytime people have this conversation, they always forget, you know, Moses got signed to an offer sheet by Philly Houston match. Then they traded him, I think for Caldwell Jones and a really nice pick that uh, Philly had. I think it was a Cleveland pick, but Moses, Moses was probably the best player in the league for five years and, or for the five year span of 79 to 83, which is, makes it so crazy. He's just getting his number retired by Philly right now. But um, but he got traded. Alonzo Mourning got traded in 1996. I don't think he's on the level of the guys we're talking about, but he did win. At some point, he won a top three MVP after he got traded. Chris Paul, Carmelo, Dwight Howard, Kawhi. Now, some of those guys became top three MVPs after they got traded. This is pretty unique. This is basically, you're talking about Wilt, Kareem, Moses- Anthony Davis, I think are are the best ones. And I'll tell you another thing. Dwight Howard was really good. I, I think there's, it, Dwight Howard and Carmelo, I think are the two guys that the way their last few years have gone have have made people kind of forget how good they were. Dwight Howard was the best center in the league for six, seven years. And was somebody that a lot of people thought won the MVP in 2011. I know some people voted for him. I think Zach Lowe voted for him actually. But he was available within a year. And it was a big deal when he got traded. Davis is a whole other level. Cause he's 25 and you know, I think Dwight Howard, I never knew if he was going to win an MVP. I think there's, I would be surprised if Anthony Davis didn't win an MVP, especially if he was playing with LeBron. So um, we'll see how this goes. I, I I really feel like this is a pivotal time for the Lakers. Cause You know, I don't know how many years LeBron is going to be able to play at this level. He's already had this this groin injury this year where he's missed a month, and just in the old days he didn't miss a month with injuries. So, you know, I do think there's a window with this, and they're they're caught in this crossroads of they have all these young dudes, and then they have this guy who's like ready to win titles now and needs a sidekick, and the reason I mentioned this is because if it's not Anthony Davis, you start looking around like, all right, well, who else could it be? They didn't get Paul George. Um, all the other guys around the league are pretty much there. There's there's a weird Kyrie possibility that I don't feel like can be ruled out now that they're getting along again. Maybe maybe that's somebody they would look at, but just for the most part, this is the best guy that's going to become available, I think, over the next 24 to Thirty months, and this is their chance to get him, and then get the third third guy this summer. But you could also compete now for a title with LeBron and Anthony Davis. So I would bet on the Lakers getting him. I would bet on on them overpaying, and the package being a little more severe with stuff they're giving up than maybe people realize it's going to be. Because if you're the Pelicans, you're like, look. This is your window because the Celtics just have more stuff. We get to the summer, the Celtics are going to get them. Now, if you're the Celtics, you're freaking out because you don't want the Lakers to get Anthony Davis. So you're in a position where you're negotiating with them, but you can't trade for them. But you could be like, hey, look, man, in in June, here's what we're thinking. Um, One thing that's really hurt the Celtics is the Sacramento pick has not been as juicy as I think we thought it was going to be. That is, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but that's a pick that's going to be in the eight to 12 range. And, you know, if they were a bottom five team, that would be a much more significant pick because now we have three potential franchise guys in this draft, including two of the most exciting prospects we've had in the last 30 years, Zion and Morant. So um, fascinating. We're going to be talking about this a lot over the next two weeks. This does not happen often. I will not tire of talking about where Anthony Davis is going to go and whether it makes sense to trade him now or later. Stay tuned uh for that. The only other thing I wanted to mention basketball is, and then we're we'll gonna get to uh Soderbergh. So I thought the Celtics Warriors game was really, really, really informative on Saturday night. I first of all, it it showed to me that the Celtics have a level in them that they can get to in a on a big stage, that they can rise to the occasion against a really good team. I, I didn't even feel like the Celtics played that unbelievable, but they're just good. They just have a lot of talent. And when they're all kind of aligned, um, I think it's the one team right now that can kind of at least hang with the Warriors. I The problem is the Celtics might lose before they even get to the finals because they screw up. So in so many different ways, I just don't think Milwaukee or Toronto has the athleticism and somebody like Kyrie and you know, Horford and they're just our best bet to give the Warriors a good finals. In my opinion right now, unless Milwaukee makes a trade. Um, The problem is Hayward has been so bad that it's, it's now a liability and it's weird because he's also the playmaker they need off the bench to kind of, kind of run the offense when Kyrie's not out there. So they have to keep playing him, and they have to hope that by April it's, it's going to turn around, but his confidence is gone. It's just gone. And, and it was honestly sad how he played in that Warriors game. He was really bad on both ends and just looked like, just looked lost. And that was a really big stage and a big moment for him. And they need him because one of the ways they have an advantage against the Warriors is to play him and Jalen and Tatum at the same time. And you have size on all these wing spots, you can switch. And if he's just shot, they're really going to have to figure out, do we, do we just give up on this for this year and give Jalen those minutes and really try to, you know, work with what we have. Or do we hold on to this hope that Hayward's going to turn around? And now it's the second week of February and we're two months away from the playoffs. And there is no signs yet that he's going to turn around. The The flip side is you watch Paul George now on OKC. I think he's the third best guy in the league this year. I'm, I'm, for MVP, he'd be. I would have him number three right now. Um, doesn't mean he's the third best player, just he's the most third, most valuable guy this season. And it took him years to come back from the injury he had, which was similar. And so if you're the Celtics, you're looking at that, going, "Man, well, maybe that happened with Gordon. Gordon wasn't as good of a player as Paul George, I don't think. Um, but his confidence is shot and he really hurts them. The other issue with that game, I, 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 I was so wrong on Cousins. I didn't think he was going to help them this year. I really thought the Warriors were not going to win the finals this year. I even said that probably two, three weeks ago on this podcast. Boogie came back and I think it's done a couple things for them. I think it's invigorated them. It's like the new character in a TV show who just makes the show more fun. He's basically, he's Richie April or, uh, or Ralphie. It's just like, Oh, Ralphie's here. See what's new for season three. Oh, Ralphie. Oh, Okay. And there's just an energy that he brings that I thought, I said this last year, I thought they looked stale last year because I think they're, they're just kind of used to each other at this point. And when he's in there, it's just different. You have this guy who can post up, who sets these big screens that he's still committed too many fouls on, uh, who can space the floor. And then on defense can really kind of bang some bodies. And I think the reason I mentioned this is I thought he looked good in that Celtic game. He's still too slow. Uh, I think his legs are still going to come back. He seems like he's about 80 to 85% right now from where he's eventually going to be. Defensively, he was really impressive in that game. And the way that uh, the Celtics were just trying to get him in pick and rolls and trying to expose him. And he was making the right decisions and doing the right things. And it really reminds me of uh, Bison Dele in 97 when, um, when he came in there on a Bulls team that had 172, that headed for 69. It was getting a little stale. And then he came in and just gave them a little extra and, and a shot in the arm. And Cousins is much better than uh, than Bison Daylight. But the stuff he brings to the table, they've just never had before. And it's made me completely rethink if he's going to be healthy this year. I just don't think anybody can beat them. I think it's going to be too hard. You saw the Celtics the other night went toe to toe and... The Warriors just got a couple stops, made a couple plays, and it's just too hard. And now they have looks. Now they can go big. They can go small. They can play Draymond as a four. They can play Durant as a three. Like, it's fucking crazy. So I went from thinking this Cousins thing was totally overblown to now thinking that it's going to ruin the playoffs. That's where we are. Lots more to discuss on Davis and all this stuff over the course of the week. I have We're going to put out a new... Trade value list for January. I did not write anything this month because we got swamped with some other stuff. So we're, what we're going to do is just because I wanted to keep the monthly list out. We're going to put that out. I'm going to do a podcast about it and try to explain some of the decisions. I still want to write the actual trade vest. So we'll probably do that either in February or in March. But uh, we're going to put the new list out. And what's fun, and this is the, the my favorite thing about this, so many things have changed. Like I did the last list, James Harden was like 12th. And now it's like, who's Houston trading James Harden for? Giannis? Uh, That's it. So uh, it accounts for a lot of that stuff. Paul George made a big move. Some other guys slid the other way. And uh, we're going to run that this week, and we'll do a pod talking about a lot of that stuff. And we also have Super Bowl and a whole bunch of things. One last note on on pods. I'm going to go on Cousin Sal's Against All Odds pod. We're going to do most of our giant Super Bowl prop podcast on that podcast with the trifecta. And then Sal's going to come on mine. We'll pick our favorite props from that podcast. Do the rest on mine and he'll do the Gary Russell bit. So there you go. Uh, We're going to take a break and then coming back with the one, the only Steven Soderbergh right after this. Hey, let's take a break to talk about Roman. Guys are terrible at taking care of their health. Studies show 70% of guys who experience erectile dysfunction do not get treated for it. That's bad. The thing most people don't realize. ED is like a check engine light for a man's body it could be an indicator something more serious is going on, like a heart issue or diabetes. Thankfully, our sponsor, Roman, created an easy, discreet way to get checked out by a doctor and get treated for ED online. It's a one-stop shop. Licensed US physicians can diagnose your ED, then ship meds right from their pharmacy to your door. With Roman, you don't have to wait in waiting rooms, deal with any awkward face-to-face conversations, or make any uncomfortable trips to the pharmacy. Just visit getroman.com bill to complete a brief online visit. Once your doctor ensures that treatment will be safe and effective for you, they can prescribe FDA-approved medication to be delivered in discreet packaging to your door with free two-day shipping. Go talk to the doctor. ED can be tough to tackle. It's really important to get it checked out. With Roman, it's really easy to take care of it. And today, Roman is giving my listeners a free online visit and free two-day shipping at GetRoman.com bill. Check it out right now. All right, this is great. Monday morning here, Sundance, here with uh, the guy who is widely credited for being the first Sundance breakout star, right? 1989, 30 years ago? 30 Steven Soderbergh.
1: Still walking around.
0: When you were here in 1989, overwhelming? What was it like?
1: Well, was it? The,
0: I mean, it couldn't have been even 120th as big as it is no, now. No,
1: it was very different. It was called the US Film Festival at yeah. that point. Um, and hadn't become the market that it became the year after. Yeah, sexualized. You so, started it. Well, uh, there were a couple of films that were here. That it was a good year. That year there were some really good movies. Yeah. Um, but it certainly, it certainly was part of a, a, a wave that I think was inevitable in the late '80s, early '90s. You know, the '80s was not a great period for studio. Films—they kind of took over. Are, all of my heroes like crashed and burned yeah. in the late '70s. Studios took over, um, and it became a much more corporate um, business. And I—it felt like there was a hunger on the part of audiences to see things that were handmade. And so we we sort of surfed that.
0: I'm so fascinated by that stretch from '85 to '89, basically, because you know the '70s are so romanticized. We Kyle and I watched, don't ask me why, because I've seen it a hundred million times, but The Godfather and Godfather 2 was on AMC last night. And we just got sucked into Godfather 2 with the commercials. And it's like, it's like three, it's three plus hours long. He's telling two different, (laughs) two different narratives that it just shouldn't have worked. And it's probably the best movie ever made from start to finish. Um, But I was thinking like, God, like what, what is that movie now? Is that like a, like I don't a know. comic you
1: know, book hero? Uh, it's it's hard <laughs> to say where, you know, I grew up with that dream of working, having filmmakers that were independent minded working in the studio system. Yeah, You know, during that period from 66 to 78, 79, you know, all of my favorite filmmakers were working for the studios. Um, so I, was, I didn't grow up as a snob. Yeah. And I wanted to work in that system as well. I just grew up in a suburban subdivision in Baton Rouge and didn't know anyone. Yeah. So I had to come at it through uh, a different path. But there was a period from Sex Lives, I'd say, through the mid-aughts where that seemed to be working. You had some really good filmmakers working in the system, and then it kind of went away.
0: I think 89 to probably 95 is it even as the years pass? But it feels this way now. But I think even like twenty five years from now, I think those five six years are going to be remembered a lot, like we remember the seventies.
1: I know somebody. I got interviewed for a book that somebody just wrote about nineteen ninety nine. Oh and, yeah, I heard and about and the list book. of films that came yeah. out that year, and you look at it, and it's it's a pretty great list. We do uh, a podcast called the Rewatchables,
0: and I was looking at that because there's a lot of we like to tie it in sometimes to the anniversaries and stuff. It ninety nine was ridiculous. Yeah, it was a good year, and all kinds of movies too. Yeah, and movies that, um, you know, like we we did this. We have a Rewatchables podcast coming tomorrow about this movie called Proof of Life that I felt like actually was a great movie that didn't get its st- yeah. just due, which is why we did it. And it's probably like it comes out in two thousand. It's got Russell Crowe at like. His A-list apex, right? Gladiator just came out. Tony Gilroy script. Right, Tony Gilroy. And it's just the kind of movie that if you put 2000 Russell Crowe into 2019, he's wearing a cape. Yeah, He's not doing Proof of Life.
1: No, everybody's wearing tights. He's Plastic Man. I know. You
0: know, and it's like that part scares me for where things are going. But then the stuff you're doing, like I saw High Flying Bird. You filmed it on iPhones. Like you're still experimenting. It's really good. It's really interesting. And that gives me hope that, you know, I still feel like the experimentation's there. It's just, I wonder, like, can Godfather 2 still happen?
1: I don't know. I don't either. Um, but I'm always, whenever I get into a, a despairing mood about that stuff, I'm also aware that as I'm feeling that way, somewhere in some room, Somebody's making something that none of us know about yet. Right. And it's going to come out and blow us away. So, well, you know, I'm always hopeful there's somebody out there. I'm always fascinated by the, the camaraderie, of the directors of those seven,
0: like that Spielberg, Lucas, Jenner, Coppola, all those guys. A lot of them were were friends. They looked out for each other. You did not have that experience in the late 80s, right? Everybody was much more on their own. And eventually...
1: Eventually, it seemed like it happened. A little bit. I mean, there's a, I think a very, I think there's a good feeling amongst the people from around that period. We were going to festivals together, and you'd run into people. So in 89... So who were those people? Well, that year, it would have been Jim Jarmusch, Spike Lee. Um, We were running into each other a lot, and it was... It was fun for me, you know, Spike and Jim were one of a handful of filmmakers during the 80s who were actually making interesting stuff independently. Um, Jim in particular was very forward looking and and sort of legendary within independent film circles because he owns all his negatives for all of his movies. And for, for people like me, that's like, oh, my God, like, how do you even do that? Um, so, and he's still cranking away so like I said I, if you told me 30 years from now you're going to be back here with, with another movie that's, that's in my mind you can draw a direct line from Sex Lies to High Flying Bird yeah. in terms of its attitude and its approach to character, its willingness to embrace a movie that's about two people in a room for the most part talking <laughs> um, you know I'm still into that stuff
0: why iPhones to to inspire young filmmakers that they can use anything they want to film a movie or like what no, was it that attracted it's you?
1: A, it's a combination of things. One, I think I'd like people to, it's, I don't think people are aware of how advanced this technology really is yeah. and what you can do with it. For projects like High Flying Bird, it's, it's the right tool because of the ease of, of putting the camera where you want and how quickly you can move so if i had a traditional camera package even on high flying bird there were certain things that i wouldn't have been able to do exactly the way i wanted yeah um so the film i think would not have been any better it might have been worse it certainly would have taken longer um and so going forward I think now we're about to be in a space where you're going to have a phone about uh, camera about the size of a phone with a full size sensor, and that'll be a game changer. Because what's great about the iPhone is I can put it anywhere. Literally, I can Velcro it to a ceiling. Yeah, I can do whatever I want, and that's that's very liberating. Um, but it's not. It's it's it was perfect for this. You know
0: who sees that?
1: Kids. Yeah,
0: I have a thirteen year old daughter and eleven an year old son and i live in la which you know there's I, I think la is a little more artistic than most cities and you have a lot of kids of parents who are in the film industry or the producers or directors or actors or whatever and i'm amazed by some of the little films that my my kids friends made and my and my kids have been in them you know and they're like yeah we what'd you do all day oh we shot a horror movie you did and then they show it and it's like wow this is like <laughs> Not terrible.
1: No, I. If I wish I'd had these tools. When oh my I was god! Starting.
0: I think that generation when they hit like nineteen to twenty-two, these kids that have been because all the editing stuff is great now, and they these kids are gonna have a sense of narrative structure, how to cut stuff, how to edit. That there's no generation that's had that.
1: No, no, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible how quickly this technology is advanced and how literally with a laptop. You can you can make a really really good looking movie. Like you really don't need much more than than what's in your pocket, right. And some software, and off you go. I've seen projects where people did incredibly elaborate visual effects, and it's all Adobe After Effects. Like it's, they're all doing it on their laptop.
0: What would you say if I told you that Sex Lies and Videotape is my mom's favorite movie, like ever? Well, Would that explain at least some of my I, there's eccentricities? A, there's a
1: lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, tell her. It really that, is. That's hilarious.
0: It comes on cable every once in a while. And she's like, Sex, Lies and Videotape oh is on HBO lately. It's
1: just amazing. That's so Just an strange. amazing
0: movie. I'm like, do you realize how weird this is? That this is your favorite movie? She's like, it's just, that James is, Spader
1: is incredible. That's, um, that's pretty unexpected.
0: It's really held up. It does not feel dated.
1: It's weird because it would, it's super it would intense. Be, I would, I would, assume, to me, it seems very quaint now. Yeah. That, that like, oh, he's got some tapes. Like when you, when it seems like a Jane Austen novel to me, now right, compared right. to what we're going through. Oh my God. Um, but I think if, if it's, if it's still able to hold someone's attention, it's because ultimately the, the, the technology is not really the, point of it ultimately No, it's it's in this case a way of someone creating a barrier between themselves and other people we're still going through that now it's just there's a lot more ways to create those barriers yeah um but
0: i I, mean the part that feels dated are you know the cassette
1: cassette tapes
0: yeah and the hair stuff like that but i think that movie now, as the years have gone on, it's really a movie about sisters and the competitiveness with sisters, and just how people can be super close but also do terrible things to each other, but then forgive themselves in the end because they're related.
1: Well, and also you you the you had four characters who are about to reach an inflection point. Yeah, that but they don't know it's coming, and so I think that watching that start to. Turn and you realize, oh, this is literally going to be one of those my life before this and my life after yeah. this. But they're all oblivious to the fact that this is about to happen, um, and I think that's satisfying to watch.
0: That's one of your favorite. You gravitate toward that idea in different. You've done that in a
1: couple of different movies. Like,
0: yeah, here are these people here. It's about to change.
1: Yeah, we're about to go to point B. Well, I guess I guess I'm also to to bring us all back to something like high-flying bird yeah you know i think we all we all go through life trying to exert some amount of control over what happens to us um and it's mostly illusory like it's it's we often are are confronted with the hard fact that the amount of things that we can control is actually very small. Um, And forget about if it's your family or anybody close to you, like that's just not happening. But it's clear that's something that I keep, I keep returning to characters who think through an act of will that they can change the situation or the world. Yeah. um, And usually come up somewhat short.
0: Do you think back how the arc of your career, which has been written about a million times, you have this huge hit, then you have the quote unquote slump, then you come roaring back. Like, do you think that it's been two decades since out of sight? And then all of a sudden you're you're in the best director category for two different films at the same time, which I don't think it happened for what, like 60 years? Like been a while. I mean, that got that went so fast. What did it feel like in the moment to um, just have your career flip like that?
1: It was it was I was trying to sort of keep my eyes f- Forward the the years between Sex Lies and Out of Sight were actually really crucial to my development yeah. as a filmmaker, and I had the luxury of making five movies in a row that nobody saw and most people didn't like, but they were they were each really important steps in me trying to figure out what lane should I be driving in, like what kind of filmmaker am I, and part of that process was determining ultimately that I wasn't a writer that I had written but I wasn't a writer I wrote to get in because yeah. nobody can stop you from sitting in front of a keyboard but once I let go of that and it's a it's a real issue for young writer directors they all want to emulate their heroes yeah. and I realized my well's not that deep when it comes to writing it's just not and as soon as I understood that everything got better immediately and so when you look at those projects, you look at like that run of five films from out of sight through oceans. Yeah. Great scripts, great screenwriters, like everything got better.
0: Right. That makes sense. I also think, and I, I tell this to people sometimes, you know, I've had successes and failures. The failures were really important. You learn You learn a shitload from them. I wouldn't, I don't regret anything that that I've done that didn't work or didn't work as well as I thought it would because- you take what what you get out of it, you're still gonna get something.
1: No, the successes, as it turns out, are kind of a mystery. Yeah. And and impossible to conjure at will. And you just have to surround yourself with people that that can at least give you the best shot at having something work. So it's kind of I always viewed it as success as this kind of mysterious person you spent a night with and then is gone. The next morning, you don't know anything about right. the failures like the family that comes over and won't leave. And you eventually have to, like, forcefully kick out of the house. Yeah. Um, but I, if the business has changed in a way that that makes me feel for the generation that's coming up now, it is that I, I had the luxury of those failures. Like you, you can't do that now. If you're a young filmmaker, you cannot make five movies in a row that nobody sees you're in jail yeah. so that i feel and that is i think a necessary part of of anyone's evolution nobody well very rare it's very rare people don't emerge full blown right out of the gate it's 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 really really rare that that's the case you need time to develop
0: do you think online twitter just the way movies are uh, dissected now would uh, would have been harmful for you in the mid '90s if that stuff was there?
1: If it had been around prior to Sex Lies, I think I would have gotten into a lot of trouble, because I was such a punk, yeah. about what I thought was good and what I thought wasn't good, and um, yeah, I would have I would have gotten in some serious hot water, I think, just mouthing off about stuff. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, well,
0: especially like you know you spend a year on a movie or something then it comes out and you get these people shitting on it
1: and Yeah, if look, you're in your that's, 20s like the, oof. the good news is that if you've done if you've done any sort of self-education about how that stuff works you'll go back and find that many of your favorite movies that have had a huge impact on you were not liked um, certainly yeah. weren't successful when they came out and that, that's just part of the that's part of the thing i've been I've been. I've had a very kind of. I look at it as sort of, it's relevant to me in the sense that it can affect the commercial life of the film, if you get good reviews or you get bad reviews, depending on what kind of movie it is. But I've never taken it on as any kind of um, definitive uh, uh, truth about what what we made. Right. Like, I just. I just have never taken it on like that. By the time I've finished something, I've been through a process with friends and family. That's, you know, speaking of Tony Gilroy, when you invite Tony Gilroy to see a rough cut of one of your movies, you better you better be prepared for what's going to happen. He's giving you the real notes. He's, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's incapable of hiding how he feels about something, um, and that's the good news. And and the, the even better news is, if you're in a situation in which you need help and you have a problem that needs to be solved, he will roll up his sleeves and help you. Um, so that uh, there's a group of people that I call upon, and I have to take a deep breath before I do. Um, I was gonna ask you about that, how many people is that? Probably 20, 25, um, spread out. And I had one director friend of mine uh, on a movie Finished. The movie was finished. Basically, we had delivered it, and I he asked, you know, oh, you're screening it? I want to see it. And he watched it, and he essentially grabbed me by the lapels when it was over, and he said, "You need to throw the score of that movie out." He goes, "It's I don't know what its commercial potential is." As it turns out, the movie had none. But he <laughs> goes, "It's it's ruining. It's it's one ask too many," um, and he was right. He was right. I threw the score out and had one completely rewritten. And that was not something I wanted to hear in that moment, but he was right. My, uh, I was friends with, with William Goldman, who recently passed yeah. away,
0: and there was all these different stories about him. And one of the ones that I thought was great was about um, he saw Silence of the Lambs, like a cut of it, and it was like pretty much locked. And he was like, it's great, great. You should take out that part with the FBI director when, the, when he gets his job's in trouble like they just take it out and uh, and Demi was like the the film was locked and it was in his head and he's like let's go back in and see if we should take that out and they took it out and Goldblum was right because right. that's like it sounds like over and over again you hear that as a theme with directors and storytellers like sometimes the, the one thing you take out is the most important part of the whole process
1: it's 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 great that that process is impossible to quantify or or predict because it keeps it fresh. But it's also super frustrating because you reach a certain point, you're like, "Well, I've been doing this for a while. I feel like I should be able to go to the hoop, right, right, you right." Know, like, but as it turns out, every movie's different. The culture, the moment in the culture is different. You just don't know what is going to land. And what it's, it's, I'm always surprised things you think are super clear to people are not. And then things that you think, oh, that's maybe that's, um, maybe we're being, you know, a little too oblique with this. And people are like, oh no, I two minutes in I knew that. So it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange process, but, um, never boring. When did you feel like you had command all your pitches?
0: Like, was there a movie where you're just like, I know how to do this?
1: Well, Out of Sight was the first opportunity to really put into use what I felt I'd learned in the years between Sex, Lies and that. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was a watershed movie for me in a lot of ways. Most importantly, um, it had to, regardless of how it performed, it was important that it be perceived creatively as a success that I could work within the studio system with movie stars and make a movie that is solid. Um, so I felt under a lot of personal pressure while we were making it, and I had to do a Jedi mind trick on myself on set to pretend as though I was on the set of Schizopolis right. and that I could do whatever I wanted, which is what I did. Yeah, I just went, it's 1971, I can do whatever I want. And, and I followed that, and I had the support of my cast and my producers in the studio. Um, So I was very fortunate. But that once that happened and I was on the other side of it, I felt like, okay, let's go. Like I set up a bunch of projects right on top of each other because I felt, I feel, I'm seeing the ball. Like, let's let's go. And so that, you know, five movies in three and a half years, that was a good run.
0: I have no idea why Out of Sight didn't do better when it came out. It really uh, had everything...
1: Summer. We weren't supposed to come out. It should out have been in like an summer. October movie? It was supposed to come out in October. And they, did they move it up? No, and... what happened was Meet Joe Black was behind schedule. Meet Joe Black was supposed to oh. come out in the summer. And they were behind. That's so, bullshit. What are you going to do? My The head of the studio, who gave me the job, said, I got a problem here. I need a summer movie. You're done. You're ready. It's a good movie. And I went... Okay, it's your call. Um, but it doesn't feel like a summer movie. <laughs> I mean, in a weird way, it worked out, but it probably didn't feel that way at the
0: time because well, it's a beloved movie. No, the, the, the awesome. perception
1: of it is that it was it was successful. That's yeah. the good news. In retrospect, nobody realizes like it we got crushed by Armageddon actually. Oh Jesus! Um, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but again, it it did for me what it needed to do. It did for George what it needed to do. We 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 hooked up at exactly the right moment we both needed this movie to, yeah. to work and so that started a relationship that turned out to be very fruitful so it was a good that was a that was a big one
0: i i had sorkin was on this podcast two weeks ago and we were talking about timing and luck and like how i mean it's not a secret but it's just how incredibly important it is to catch people at the right point sometimes with movies totally. Clo you Clooney and j-lo at probably like the absolute perfect time you would have wanted them to make that movie. I, like, I, I still was like discovering J-Lo. You know, I'd seen her a couple of things, but I didn't know that much about her. That was the first time I really felt like, oh, I'm spending two hours with J-Lo. And then Clooney was basically the ER doctor who hadn't really made it big in a movie yet. And we didn't know if he could carry one. And then it's like, oh yeah, he can carry one.
1: Yeah, well, I think we were both viewed as people with potential. Yeah. And, and the questions were starting to come up like, and when are we going to see what we think we see? And so, yeah, he and I bonded very quickly over that immediately. Like, we had very similar taste in movies anyway. So it just, we just sort of fell into this very, very fast.
0: Was it a coincidence that you just start working
1: with huge stars after that? Did you gravitate to talent? Um, No, I think it's, it's a matter of understanding what's going to be best for the project. Um, And not shying away from the fact that movie stars are a very important tool (laughs) in your arsenal. They've been with us since the beginning of cinema. Um, There's nothing wrong with putting movie stars in a movie. It's only a problem when they're misused or it seems inappropriate or it distorts uh, the project somehow. But um, there's nothing, I think, for an audience... Nothing more satisfying than seeing one of their favorite movie stars in a role that you feel like they were born to play. Like, that's that's like a real dopamine hit.
0: Yeah, I remember Tarantino was saying about Pulp Fiction, how he used to, he loved John Travolta. He just felt like he was a movie star. It's like, I really want John Travolta in this movie. Yeah. I like John Travolta. And there's, it's really hard for an actor to pass that point where people feel that way about them. But like when you had Julie Roberts... What was that like? That was 2000, right? Yep. Brockovich, And she was just, she made all some strange choices in the 90s, but then kind of went back to me and Julia Roberts, my best friend's wedding and Notting Hill. And it's like, oh, Julia Roberts. Yeah. And then you hit her right as it's like, oh, she can do this too. And uh, that's like the most unique performance of her career because she's Julia Roberts, but she's also,
1: you know. it was, Yeah, you're absolutely right. That I was very aware that, that, the timing of this was was perfect. It was exactly what she wanted to be doing. Um, so she saw very clearly um, what the movie could do for her creatively. I had just come off. I'd been approached about doing Aaron Brokovich while we were doing Out of Sight because it was yeah. the same set of producers. They described it. So I, me- I remember where I was standing on the set of the, of the mansion uh, at the end of the film, Albert Brooks Mansion, oh, as yeah. they pitched me this idea between setups. And I literally said, that sounds like the worst idea I've ever heard <laughs> for a film. Why would you think I would want to do that? Year and a half later... I'm in the middle of editing hell with the Limey, which I'm not it's not clear at the point that they reapproached me that that we were gonna be able to figure that out. Yeah. Like it was it was one of the most terrifying creative periods of my life, the months of editing the Limey. Yeah. They came back to me, they had a new draft of the script, and they came back to me, and suddenly a movie like that seemed to be the perfect thing that I should be doing. It's going in one direction. Yeah. like It's very simple. All I've got to do is make sure I've got the camera in the right spot to capture this performance, and we're all going to be fine. So that that 18-month period, you know, I just needed to move into another direction. But when I think back that, that wow, that could have easily not have happened, um, I was lucky.
0: Traffic couldn't have been as a... Uh as as easy.
1: No, that was... We Those didn't are have, tough ones. We didn't have the money until three weeks before shooting because the consensus was no drug movies ever made money, which was true. Yeah. And so every studio turned it down and it was Graham King and Barry Diller at USA Films who came in three weeks before and said, okay, we'll do it. Um, it felt... It was... Scarface didn't make money? I guess I not. I don't think they viewed that as a drug yeah. movie. That was, <laughs> right. you know, kind of... De Palma, Pacino, Extravaganza. Out of control. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, it felt to us like a zeitgeist film, like it was an election year. Yeah. It felt like this, this issue was like building, like people wanted to talk about it. The sad thing is, and we sensed this when we were making the film, um, you could make that movie every five years because nothing's changing and in some ways things are worse. Um, so at the time it felt, it has to happen now. If we miss this window, it's going to close and we'll never get to make this. Um, and the funny thing was that traffic, for me, traffic and Aaron, um, were not hard. Oceans was hard. Oceans was hard. Why was Oceans hard? It was a new grammar for me. It required a new set of skills. Um, and I was terrified and it was uh, like, I spent more time on set trying to figure out how to do something than I ever had before. I was really, it was hard. It, and but, so the funny thing is- you, you talking would,
0: about the look or dealing with the actors? Oh, everything? no, the actors were fine. The yeah. script
1: was perfect. It was just, you know, I, I felt it deserved a, a real bravura kind of visual- style. And it was just, I hadn't really made anything quite like that before. And it took me about, it took me about a week before the math of it finally became apparent to me. And I realized like, oh, okay, the geometry of how all these shots should be designed and built and put together is this, you know? Um, So it was, it, it was, it was just the biggest thing I'd ever been a part of you know it was back what 89 million dollars which to me was like it's a lot of money yeah Um, how much was
0: sex size video a million (laughs) so
1: um, but it's the oceans films for me are a kind of movie i really enjoy doing even though they're tricky because i get to play in a way that i don't really get to play on other kinds of films yeah they they can handle a lot of um, trickery and sort of, you know, those are as close to comic book movies as I can get. Like, that's it. And I viewed them sort of as comic book films in a way.
0: Hey, I want to take a break to talk about our Super Bowl coverage here at The Ringer. I mean, we have some awesome football writers. A lot of them are in Atlanta. A lot of them are hanging out. Although I don't know who hangs out. Does anyone hang out with Kevin Clark? No, Kevin Clark. I mean, he's got an entourage now. He's just, I, he's gone off the rails, but um, they're all there. They're doing, uh, they're writing pieces. They're doing podcasts. You can listen to the wonderful Ringer NFL show. You can listen to Dual Threat with Ryan Rossillo, He's going to have a Super Bowl preview. You can listen to Against All Odds where I'm going to be on there doing the Super Bowl props with the Generate Trifecta. Uh, you could read all of our great coverage. And most important, Not most important, but almost as important, as important, just as important. There it is, Kyle, just as important. Uh, We sent our social team down there and we're doing a bunch of videos that you can watch on our YouTube channel as we try to get our YouTube channel over 100,000 subscribers, inching our way closer. Kevin Clark's going to be doing Slow News Day from there. Uh, We're shooting a bunch of little short videos, trying to catch just the scene, what it's like down there. So check that out. The ringer.com ringer podcast network live from the super bowl all week. And then uh, on this podcast, we'll be, I'll be doing my big pick on Thursday. So there you go. Were you surprised all those actors got along so well? A lot of famous people in that movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, George and I, one of the things that we, I think, bonded over was the no asshole rule. So yeah, I was gonna say it's
0: almost like putting together a basketball team where you it, want to make sure you don't have like the cancer.
1: Yeah, so we people were vetted. You know, <laughs> Interesting, and 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 I'm glad because they were. It was fun. It was fun to watch them together because they they really they really liked each other. Yeah, a lot. They never left the set. You know, they just they enjoyed hanging out. Um, and I'm really, I think looking back. Um it's a real testament to uh the late great Jerry Weintraub to to be able to have retained that cast and made three movies in six years, that's hard. With all the choices that they have. That's hard. Like I I, well, it seems like they I just challenge like somebody it. to do that <laughs> now. Like it's it and it's because they wanted to do it. But that's Jerry kind of, you know, keeping everybody on the boil.
0: Yeah, to borrow the basketball analogy, that's like keeping the Warriors together, yeah, and preventing Durant from leaving. Do you leaving. think they're splitting apart? I, I, I worry about where Durant heads because I I think there's a chance he leaves. Really, I do.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
0: I think uh, it's really hard to keep a good team together. Where uh, it's this it's this world now where you touched on a little bit in your movie, but it's this world now where everybody wants their team and they want to be the guy
1: in the team and um do you think that really like that beats for them like winning the championship
0: well the, but the thing is if you've won a couple times then that becomes less important right? right because at some point you're thinking i i think the media and the fans care about the legacy stuff a lot more than the players do hmm. they just look at it like well if i'm the best guy in this team then everything goes through me and right I'm the guy. I mean, Kyrie left LeBron. LeBron was the second best player of all time. Yeah. So I I think there's a lot of dynamics in play. When you make the High Flying Bird sequel, I think there's some I think there's some stuff you can have in there about uh
1: Well it'd be hard because obviously the the you know it's the difficulty now in trying to make a realistic sports film because none of the leagues will cooperate with anything that isn't a Valentine to them. Right. so We dealt with that with all the documentaries we've done, yeah. Yeah. It's really frustrating because now you can't make a realistic sports film about what's really going on. Like most people, when I see sports movies where the teams are fake, I'm like not really engaged. Um, but you just can't. So. It's only
0: kind of worked one time, any given Sunday. They really put a lot of time and effort into the uh, the names of the teams yeah. and the uniforms, and it was like, all right, I'm kind of in on, the, yeah. on these fake teams we've created. But, yeah, in your movie you were using – they were saying NY instead of New York and stuff like that. Was that intentional? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so the what, NBA so what's was What's also like,
1: interesting is, you know, we wanted to have some real sportscasters in the movie. And the ESPN was like, we don't want anything to do with this. So we went to Fox and they were like, great. I thought that was an interesting inversion. All an, I'm saying inversion. is I was right here. I was ready for if, if,
0: the, if there was a podcast with the agent or something. Right. You, I would have filmed the well, podcast. That's good to know. So, yeah. For the sequel, I'm available. Okay. So you, did you go to the NBA and they were just like, no, 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 there was no
1: point. I knew, I knew we were, what kind of territory we were in. Um, and it wasn't really, it, it, given what it was, um, it wasn't really necessary. Like it was. Yeah. It's really hard to notice unless you're looking for that. stuff Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it really is asking the movie is just asking a lot of what if questions and, and, when somebody asked me the other day, well, you know, what would you hope the takeaway from this movie would be for people watching it? And I said, well, what I would hope is when they watch a basketball game now, they really think about the the lives of those players. Like right. that these are these are people and they they're like that the, you're watching them on the court. They have another 22 hours that they've got to deal with, you know, and it's pretty intense, like talk interviewing those three guys, um, it was clear. Like the level of scrutiny and pressure they're under is just extraordinary. So, for those of you who don't know out there,
0: he, you intersperses Carl Anthony Towns, Reggie Jackson, and Donovan Mitchell. and Donovan Mitchell, and they just kind of pop in every once in a while. How long did you interview those guys for?
1: I think each one was about twenty-five minutes. Yeah, yeah, you know, to a half an hour. I got some good stuff. I should yeah. probably like put something together. They were they were incredibly generous you know with their experience and and it was fascinating to hear them talk about how how the game is now and how it's changed even in a generation for young players and they talked about sort of what we were saying that there's there's very little tolerance now for people who are kind of toxic or don't do the work like this idea of this 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 cliche of like the savant player who can just like walk onto the court and and create magic they're like that doesn't exist
0: well there's also there's too many dynamics in place now for if you're an asshole or if if there's some sort of power struggle between the stars or whatever it just comes out now and you know 30 40 years ago we still had people covering the teams but it wasn't like it is now where people would
1: just be like sources Oh my God! To, think to, think, so think so about so the so Yankees so like from the seventies. Oh my in God! The Bronx in, in today's environment, I mean, people. Be nuts. Would, I, I don't know how they would function. The system's
0: know. kind of designed for these guys not to get along long term. Um, now you could argue basketball's always been that way because you go back and it's like, you know, Shaq and Penny broke up. Kobe right. and Shaq broke up. Oh, Michael Jordan and the
1: Bulls—like they just decided they don't want him anymore. Um, well, so it's, it's just really you, hard when you think about it. It's I think part of that is driven by it's a physically intimate game. It's yeah. a small team. Yeah, you're 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 like right there. Like your your pals are like sweating all over you. You're like touching people. Like it's a very intimate game. What I like about it is I was saying to somebody the other day, it's as fast as a sport can get without becoming truly violent. Yeah. And so that's why it's so fun to watch. But it's there there aren't the opportunities like there are in some of the other sports to like. Be over on this side of the field. Yeah. Put me out wide so I don't have to talk to that guy. Right. You know, but here you're just, you're in the pit. And so I would imagine that's, it's a much more, you know, emotionally uh, intense experience for those five people on the court. But it's such a, it's interesting to look at the game. I don't know how you feel about how the, it seems to me like it's, there are too many games given how many teams make the playoffs.
0: Like, if you're going to have
1: 82 games, you can't have 60% of the league going to the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's why nobody starts watching until March, you know, basically. Because you're like, what were these first 60
0: well, games the, for? It's weird that everybody's watching, but it, there's no urgency with the standings. Right. But I, I've been amazed. That th- the biggest thing that's changed this decade just for, you know, for doing this for a living and having websites. Like we had Grantland 2011 and then... Say we have now, the ringer. Um, It's a 12 month a year sport now. And people care in July and August. And yeah. that was not the case before. Whereas like some other sports, it's flipped.
1: Like in no, baseball. You, you get to the end of the year and the, for, as soon as the championship's over, it's like the draft. Let's right. Let's talk about the draft. Free like, agency. They, yeah, exactly. Where's he
0: going? Yeah. And then this guy, and he might want to trade. And we just get content out of it constantly. And then a sport like baseball, the, the two biggest free agents are still unsigned. It's crazy. And it's, Heading into February. I know. And if this was basketball, we'd be having a heart attack. Like just today, right before uh, we started taping this, it came out Anthony Davis demanded a trade from New Orleans. Really? His agent um, basically leaked it to uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, who's the top basketball reporter. Right. And carefully orchestrated on Monday morning to start the news cycle. It's just what basketball is now. It's yep. 2019. It's like, we're going to do this, I'm going to do this the right way. We're going to start the day with it. Everybody will get their shows out of it and then try to figure out where he's going. And that's what all we're going to do for the next two weeks is figure out what the Anthony Davis trade is. Yep. So it's just become part of what basketball is. You, you, you dipped into this lockout. We had Grantland. We started in June, 2011. There's a lockout right after. Yep. And there hit a point where it was like, fuck, what are we going to do? There might not be basketball. And, uh, I remember writing, I'm so mad. I was writing these angry pieces about uh, the lockout, but one of the pieces, me and uh, another writer, we had Jake Caspian King, we wrote a piece called The Renegade Basketball League about what would happen if the players just said fuck it and we started own their it. league. Yeah. yeah, and we we created fake teams and we did an expansion draft and the idea seemed crazy but fun. But now in your movie in 2019 with Facebook and Uh, the way we have cameras now and just the way you can be so accessible streaming. You really could do
1: this. Yeah, you could. And you could finance it entirely on all the broadcast rights and all the merchandising. And that's of all the sports, it's the one I've always wondered. Like, why don't they try and take this over? Yeah, because you don't
0: need as many players as football or no,
1: any of the other stuff. But, I mean, the
0: reason you wouldn't is because they all make an incredible amount of money.
1: <laughs> you well, know? they do, and there would be there 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 might be a big change in the economic paradigm. Um, and and make no mistake, the administering of a major sports league is an incredibly complex. Uh, effort. And so to say like, yeah, we're going to start our own lead, like, okay, no, let's sit down and talk about what's actually, that's going to, what it's going to take to do that. And who's going to, who's going to be running that? Like, who do you then install in this position of authority to make sure this thing is going the right way? But, you know, it is, it is interesting to me, you know, the, the movie sort of gets into this idea of, To what extent do the owners in these situations have rights over the players' lives and what they do when they're not on the court? Um, Well, I think
0: the players have, have pushed the envelope on that in all kinds of ways. I mean, they're basically like they do whatever they want on social media. Right. And the NBA has no control over it. And the NBA guys with social media, they're the biggest ones out of all of them. And you know, LeBron's just he can have his own press conference after games. He doesn't need to talk to reporters. Yeah, right. Right. Just skip the middleman. Almost like how Trump uses Twitter. He doesn't talk to anybody reporters. <laughs> now, there's a benefit to talking to reporters, but um Yeah, I'm really interested in seeing where all this stuff goes because did you follow the Tiger versus Phil thing? Yeah. So the basketball I watched, version it, of that, I paid, I watched. Yeah, I paid it too. <laughs> so the basketball version of that is Zion Williamson who is one of the most exciting prospects ever. Yeah, And then there's this other prospect, Morant, on Murray State, who's a guard who's um, basically like a taller Russell Westbrook, and he's also an amazing dunker. Those guys between the end of the college season and the draft could just have a dunk contest yeah. and be like, it's 9 pay-per-view it. And people would pay-per-view it. They would Absolutely. make money right away. And the NBA wouldn't be able to do jack shit. Absolutely. So I'll be interested to see if that stuff starts happening because I think it will, and I, that was one of the reasons I liked your movie because you you're foreshadowing where this world is going, which as eventually everybody's going to look around and go, "Hey, do we need these old white owners anymore?"
1: Well, and I think the the real you know that makes me think that this college athlete thing has got to be sorted. That's out. what's going to come. This yeah. is this is this is just ridiculous. That that these kids that are, Zion's are, in
0: class right now and he's going to be leaving in late March and yeah, that's and
1: it and is generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue for yeah. that school, um, and he gets nothing. Like there has to be, th- this can be figured out. You come yeah. up with a system, some sort of point system or something where you there's some level of compensation here. For these players who put in the hours. Like, it's just, it's hard to watch, frankly. It's gotten to the point with me with college sports. Like, I, I don't enjoy it the way I used to. Yeah. It's hard to watch. Because uh, I think, these, you know, as we know, catastrophic injury, you're done. That that's right. it. You know, good luck with your degree.
0: Yeah. The, <laughs> uh, I think the NBA has the key to this with the G League. Mm-hmm. The G League, I'm really intrigued by because. There's – they don't really spend any money on the players or, you know, it's – for whatever reason, they haven't kind of gone all in on it. But they should. And when they do, they could basically – these guys could come right out of high school and go to the G League, get drafted, and you spend at least a year in the G League, maybe two. And with the way everybody wants content now, that it's actually – Pretty good content of Zion's in the G League this year yep. and the Knicks G League team.
1: Well, it makes sense, too, because in talking to the the three players that I interviewed, they agreed. I was sort of talking from the outside, and I said, it would appear to me that of all the major sports, there's the biggest gap between college play and pro play in basketball as compared to any of the other sports. Yeah. And they were like, absolutely. They all said, like, I, had to, I just basically had to forget – Everything that I was taught when I right. played until I showed up in the pros. They're like, it's just a different world.
0: Well, we talked about failure before. It's all these guys were always the best or one of the best. And now you get in the league and you, like Mitchell says that in the movie, he played like what, 20, 22 he had 20 points in 20 like points 11 games 20, or something. Yeah, 11 yeah. games or something. It's like, that's, I guarantee the first time that guy's failed at basketball since he was like, since eight. ever. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that's part of it too. The Celtics are doing with that now because they have, they just have a loaded roster and they have these young guys that would be starting on any other team who are playing 18 minutes. Right. And they're not playing well. And part of the reason they're not playing well is because they know they could be playing 40 minutes on a different team. So, it's complicated. Um, I want to talk about sports movies really quick. Mm-hmm. So, a topic I, I've been fascinated by forever. I've written a shitload about sports movies and there's these different genres, right? So, you have like the 70s is like the first wave, right? You get the longest yard, then you have Rocky, and then mm-hmm. like everybody ripping off Rocky with every different sport, basically all the way through, I would say, the mid, maybe the mid-80s. Then there's a little more creativity. We get to the late 80s, and you get like the Field of Dreams mm-hmm. and those type of movies. But at the same time, we're still making Rocky over and over again with Major League and those kind of things. Then it kind of dies down. Then it comes back again in the late 90s because they become profitable because you can put the one star in the poster. And then that leads to this next great wave of movies that the, the, remember the Titans and all those kind of movies. Right. Then that starts to go and sports movies can't make the same money. You know, it, it's just not a worthwhile bet
1: for the studio. Yeah, no, because the foreign's not very Yeah, big. because
0: they don't, especially yeah. if it's football. Yeah. So by '09, it starts getting really interesting. The the movies kind of go to another level, and they become movies that kind of use sports, which is what you do. You made it. You made a movie that happens to take place in
1: sports. With no sports in it. With no sports in it. Well, what I was trying—that's where we're heading. What I would have wanted to avoid in any sports movie was is the situation in which your your emotional engagement with the story hinges on the outcome of a specific game. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's just a trope that's in all sports movies, and it was one that I was not interested in following. Yeah. So what I liked about when Andre and Terrell McCraney and I started talking about the movie is I realized, oh, this is this will be fun because it's, it's never going to be – you never like rooting for somebody to hit one at the buzzer. It's not – it's a sports movie without that cliche in it. Yeah, um, And hopefully, I mean, anecdotally, people who've seen the film who are who don't follow sports um, find it easy to engage with, because the issues in it are can be applied to almost any context. Yeah, um, and so, and it's fairly, you know, kind of I had in mind when we were making it Sweet Smell of Success, which is one of my favorite. Films, very like fast, verbal, contained period of time that the story takes place over. That was what we wanted to to recreate.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Jerry Maguire, sub so I was 96, yeah. it, it kind of flipped the script on what a sports movie was, but it still had the climactic game at the end. Yeah. But that was – I thought that was such an important movie because – it created this Rod Tidwell character that was like, "This is the coolest sports movie character we've ever created." This is like actually a guy who could be in football, and there was real thought to the nuances of him and the stuff he was going through. And I think over the next twenty plus years, that's been the most interesting way that sports movies has evolved is putting a little more thought into the character, right? Versus just like, "All right, here's the setup, and then you know, and he's gonna rally back, and then yeah, yeah." But what's crazy to me is that they still make the boxing movies. I, how many boxing movies can we make? I don't know. I got approached by one. I'm surprised You're, you have made one. You're no, like the only director where, that's where, ever made one. Where
1: are you going to go with that? I don't know. I'm I'm I just somebody I sort of stopped them before they got very far and I just went I I have no idea where you can take this cuz there's been some pretty definitive movies about boxing and going in a variety of directions like I just don't uh, I don't know what my angle on it would be and how I would shoot it in a way that's better than the way some other people have done it I you know Creed
0: reinvigorated it but so much of that had to do with the Stallone hook to yeah. it and the fact that we had a history with this guy and now he was back and um but I I think part of it I think the actors like getting in crazy shape
1: and and hitting stuff,
0: and hitting stuff, yeah. and just like it's almost like a rite of passage for great actors. Almost all of them have done it.
1: Yeah, it's true. You know,
0: but I, it's weird that we've had so many boxing movies and like zero MMA movies. There's no, I mean, been like part a of warrior the warrior,
1: well, and that's about it. Part of the fun of making Haywire was working with Gina Carano. Oh yeah, what, yeah, and, yeah. And you know, she was. It was so fun to watch her do all that stuff. Like she was. She was one of my favorite images. That that if I had to pull out, it would be right up near the top of the list. Is this a shot from Haywire, and we were in um, Barcelona? She's she's running as fast as she can run, and the camera's three feet in front of her. I'm on the back of like an ATV yeah. thing with the camera, you know on a, on a hinge. And so like, if this thing slows down or anything happens, there's going to be blood and she's just, she's and she, she can run like she can run. Yeah. She doesn't, she looks like somebody that you wouldn't want to have chasing you. And, uh, Shoshana the costume designer she's wearing this black jacket and the lining inside is like this animal print so you just see it flapping you know as she's running it's very subtle you have to kind of look for it but it's super cool Yeah. you know and I just I loved watching her run I loved watching her hit people like it was there was something really satisfying about this very arresting looking woman just like beating the shit out of people right. <laughs> it was just I, I, I loved making it
0: You've you've done so much experimentation since you became super successful. And I, I always really appreciated that somebody was out there doing that. The thing you did two years ago where you did Logan Lucky and you're just like, fuck it. I'm not doing any of the – I'm not doing this old school model of the advertising and all that stuff. We're just – this can be a word of mouth thing. And it didn't work. But it was an amazing experiment. And now that movie, I feel like I feel like a lot of people – that movie's heading in the right place from oh, yeah. people have seen it, people like it, but it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because I would have thought with the internet and the influencers and all that stuff we have now that that actually should have worked. Uh,
1: no, the studios were right about everything. Yeah. Um, we didn't have enough money. I I, I I was under the illusion that with a smaller amount of money... Used in a very surgical way, you could achieve uh, the same result. And we're talking about—we have to be clear what we're talking about here. Wide release movie, like mo- opening a movie on three thousand screens. That's what, this is what I was trying to see if there was a lane to be opened up, you know, that wasn't with a studio where a filmmaker like me could create a model where they could put a wide release movie out for less money, more transparency in terms of how the economics work. Yeah. Absolute creative freedom over every aspect of the release. It just didn't work. It didn't work twice because I did it again on Unsane and it didn't work again. We had $20 million in marketing in each case. It wasn't enough. They were right. You can't get out of bed for less than 30. So it's just a pure awareness. You can't get awareness. You just can't. And we tried very different approaches on each one. Like, okay, this time we're going to put the money here. We're going to do this. We like, we, it just didn't work.
0: What was the movie you made when you released it at the same time? There were two. Bubble
1: Bubble and uh, The Girlfriend Experience. Yeah, yeah. Bubble was earlier, though. 2005. Yeah. And everybody got mad at you. The theater's like, this this is the end of everything. It was, um, yeah, it wasn't a popular idea.
0: (laughs) Well, that's their worst fear, right? But it
1: seemed inevitable. Look, what I think, I was talking about this yesterday to somebody, this whole... Windowing thing I think the problem, the problem that we're seeing now is people are trying to apply a a unified field theory of how this windowing issue should work when in point of fact, every movie is different. Yeah. Here's what here's the argument I would make to NATO, who John Fithian who runs NATO. I've become very friendly with Um, the minute. Logan Lucky and Unsane. The minute I knew that Logan Lucky and Unsane were not gonna work, I should be able to get that thing up on a platform immediately. Mm. You know what I mean? Like not not that we planned to do it. It's just I knew by Friday noon.
0: That so we, you're getting that we like those were numbers. Yeah.
1: And I just spent twenty million dollars. Dude, let me drop this thing next week. Yeah. Nobody's going. Like I'm not hurting you. You're I'm hurt now. We're all hurt. Right. Because now I gotta wait. 60 days, 90 days, whatever, and then it's a memory. And so that's, I think there needs to be some understanding that uh, you, you're you never going to have one approach that's going to work for everything. It's not. So I think they should start having conversations about, we got this movie of this scale with these people in it, this pedigree, we want to go out this wide. Why don't we, let's say the window on this is X, and we've got this other movie that's a little more experimental that we're not sure about. And if let's have an understanding, if it tanks that we can get this thing up quickly, that's that's what I would do.
0: Yeah, it's still I was thinking about this when I saw a Star is Born, which I really liked. He did a good job. He did a good job. It was a good movie theater movie. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge these days. And it's a challenge in sports too, ironically. Because the TVs are so nice now and it's so comfortable at home. And it's like, do I want to go to 81 Red Sox games a year? Yeah. Or do I just want to watch the Red Sox and I could be on my phone and I'm not dealing with assholes next to me and no, all that and stuff. No, then the
1: coverage is amazing. Like, yeah. This is what America does better than anybody in the world is sports coverage. The widescreen
0: like, has changed the game for all these different sports, including basketball. It's just yeah. much more fun. If you watch ESPN Classic or um, the Hardwood Classics on NBA TV, and you watch the 2000 square. finals, the <laughs> yeah. square, and it's blurry. You yeah. can't see anything. Yeah. And you would see so much more when you're into the game. I still I'm still value going to the games because I think you can pick a lot of the body language stuff, how guys interact, um, just how breathtaking some of them are. Like somebody like Giannis, like you just have to see him in person. But it's not the necessity like it used to be. And well, I and think movies are sim- like that too.
1: Yeah, there's a similar thing happening in movies in that when I was – when I was growing up, there was a big difference between what you saw on your TV and what you saw in a movie theater. Huge. There's just not that big a gap anymore. Like these like you're saying, these now we're in a 4K world, you know, 85-inch screens like this stuff is stunning. And when you combine now we're in a, I don't know if you've all had this experience of going to theaters where people like don't know how to behave anymore. You know, they just of they, course they think they're in their living room. Yeah, like you're, you're like, wow, they're on their so phone. The glare of
0: the phone is like coming yeah, out of the yeah, side of your like eye. Yeah, they're like talking and everything. Yeah. Like
1: they're literally like it's their living room. So, you know, it's I agree that there are there are certain kinds of films that really benefit from the the theater going experience. Get Out would be a perfect that was awesome example. In the like yeah. that's a great. Creed was theater good too. Movie. Like there's
0: there's good theater movies. Yeah. There's other ones that it's fun to go to the movie theater, but you don't necessarily need to see it in the theater. And I think how people find that balance with trying to get this stuff on demand because we have – it's worked. We've seen it work with different things where there's movies I want to see. It's like, oh, shit, it's on DirecTV already? Great. Yeah. I don't have to go to the theater and I'm paying $9.99. I don't know if that's good for the filmmaker or bad.
1: I think it depends I think I think everybody on both sides the people making stuff and the people paying for the stuff that's made are are in the process of of redefining what success means because the the old definitions just don't apply anymore the business has completely changed and so I think it's important for filmmakers too to be clear about what they really want you know I think if you ask most filmmakers what they want more than anything is eyeballs. Like they just want as many eyeballs on what they made as possible. And so somebody like me, I'm pretty agnostic about where, where it shows up. Yeah, you know, I just want you to see it um, where it's going to be interesting, I think, over the next three to five years as these companies begin to consolidate and really put down roots into this new look, we're gonna have a bunch more streaming platforms in 12 months yeah like these all these big companies have decided okay that's we're we're really focused on that we think the future is kind of heading in this direction it's going to be interesting to see five years from now if somebody looks at the p l statement and just goes I'm done like I don't I don't get it uh, this this model I, I don't I don't see how we make a lot of money in this model I I actually
0: really like where we are right now because I think the next five years are going to be fascinating. Even like what you've seen with some of the stuff Netflix has done this year. They're making teen comedies. My daughter, like her three favorite, my daughter's 13, her three favorite movies this year were on Netflix movies. They had stopped making those movies. They weren't making movies for people like her. I love horror movies. There's like a million horror movies that are out now because their stupid algorithms are pointing to like yeah make car movies
1: well it's a tricky thing because as tough as the theatrical business is um and the and the, the economics of it are are not very rational there's also at the same time there's no equivalent in terms of success in dollars of a movie that blows up yeah there's no you can have a hit tv show and it'll throw off a lot of money over the years and stuff like that but if you, if you hit the jackpot on a movie that makes like a billion and a half dollars, <laughs> right. like it's, there's just no other <laughs> equivalent of that in the industry. So that's why people keep chasing it. Like, well, it, like it's
0: like the fast and furious model
1: where, uh, the Decalogue, it's going to be a Decalogue. Yeah, they make, make 10 this, of them.
0: They make point break, point break with cars and it's good. And they make two sequels that are okay. Not great. They do well. And then it becomes James Bond. Yeah. And now they're just going to make them forever until Vin Diesel, like he's going to be in a wheelchair getting into his uh, Testarossa Absolutely. or whatever. He's just going to go and go and go. Um, I asked Sorkin this, so I have to get your answer on this okay. just because it was my it was my new favorite question for people like you. What movie over the last 15 years were you the most jealous of? Jealous of? Yeah, jealous. Because you're a competitive guy. There's just some movie out there like, oh, fuck, that's a good one. I wish I made that.
1: Well, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Under the Skin. A Jonathan Glazer movie with Scarlett Johansson. That's a masterpiece. Like, this guy's made three movies. He made Sexy Beast. That was his first movie, which is a perfect film. Yeah. His second film was called Birth with Nicole Kidman, which is a fascinating movie. Like, as close to a Kubrick movie as you can get without Kubrick being around. It's a yeah. very interesting film. And then Under the Skin is, to my mind, just kind of jaw-dropping. The reason I think about it a lot is that, again, if this was a movie that came out when I was growing up, everybody would have been talking about it. Everybody would have seen it. It would have been – it would have taken up a lot of cultural real estate. Yeah. And this thing just – it was just – nobody saw it. Nobody talked about it. I mean, the people that saw it was like, wow, this is really good. But there, there wasn't – I remember seeing it with my wife, Jules Asner, who said not to say hello. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We walked out of the theater and she's like, holy shit, like that was, you know, that's a piece of cinema that reminds you of like what you can do with the language. You know what I mean? It's just such a stunning piece of work. And it was it just like it w- in, in this country at least it might as well have just not even shown up, so I see something like that and and that was a movie where I, where I was like, wow he's really good I, I got to steal that like there was stuff in it that that I wish I'd thought of yeah yes, um, but that's a good one. It is good. Look, it's it's
0: I like that answer too. It's unexpected. So if you did traffic in two thousand nineteen, is that a ten episode Netflix series? Oh yeah. There's no way you make that a movie, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And they they probably gave a huge budget. They did a series of it for a few years, not long after the movie. Um, I'm just saying now. But, well, it's Narcos. I mean, that's what Narcos is. Um, Absolutely. Look, I think I certainly went through a period probably around the time I was doing The Nick where if somebody – broached a, a, an idea for a project to me i my first thought would have been why is this not a tv series yeah because i do th- b- but i say that knowing and understanding that there are certain ideas that are movie ideas logan lucky is a movie idea that i is thought it's, high it's,
0: flying bird was so i don't yeah, know if exactly. you that that's not episodes. a series yeah, yeah like
1: there's certain ideas that really sing in that Format
0: the Kyle McLaughlin owner character might have been a ten episode series though. There is an NBA owner him show. in the steam
1: room with the coach's just, handkerchief. <laughs> I thought
0: one of the one of the underrated scenes was just like him on the him on his giant private jet with his reading his newspaper and the the stewardess is bringing the fruit and it's like these guys are like aliens they're like oh, yeah. in a whole other world and they all know each other and it's like this little ha- secret handshake club and. I'm ready to go into that world because I know a little about it. I think, right. I think you know, And you had, he had the, the wife with the dog. It was like, it was classic. They could, like there's probably 10 owners that were like, is he making fun of me? Yeah, right. And they probably didn't know who it was. Yeah.
1: Um, no, what's, the, what's your next one? I, it, it's funny you should ask. For the first time in I don't know how long, I don't have the next thing. Like I have things, but I have not pulled the trigger. On anything yet, so this is weird. Usually, when I'm in post production, and we're on, we're in post production on a movie now, you need a next uh, one. Well, I have stuff. I just haven't. I'm not sure what. Three of them are movies, and I'm wondering. So, but where, where should I make these? How should they be put out? You know what I mean. They're not movies like High Flying Bird. You know that are kind of smallish. They're they're in theory, movies that did come out and go into wide release. And I I guess I'm trying to figure out where's the forever home <laughs> for these projects. I don't know. I would think this is a fun time to try to figure out what is the
0: perfect situation for each idea. Because in the old days, it's like movie or TV show, and that's it. And now it's like there's 19 different iterations Absolutely. of everything. No. Even what you did with this, I thought was just really interesting and i, I don't know what's going to happen to it i netflix has a way of they can own the conversation for three days if it's the right thing like we just saw the fire festival back right that thing owned the conversation Absolutely.
1: for five days that was one talk about a scary movie That's that was great. 20 minutes in i just like got the sweats because it's literally like I have nightmares like that. Yeah, literally, yeah, Literally, yeah. where like things like that are going that way. Right. That was it. Was really intense to watch. Like it was. I I, I, I was really anxious You've, when I was watching it. Have you,
0: have you made like Gone All In on a documentary?
1: I made one um, a few years ago about Spaulding Gray. Oh yeah. What'd you think of that whole process compared to a movie? Well, it was that was kind of a. a, a a unique situation because what i decided while developing it was that we would essentially build a new monologue out of existing footage that had been recorded of Spalding yeah over decades that that i guess one day i was sitting around thinking why would i interview people talking about the best talker ever like let's just create a new monologue out of all of the work that he's done all yeah. the interviews he's given and that's what we ended up doing we had 90 hours of stuff and we got it down to 90 minutes and and so it became like a new monologue yeah, um so that's cool. it was but it was incredibly it was also very it was upsetting like he was a friend it was a terrible tragedy and um it was hard it was hard to like be swimming in that for so long because I missed him, as yeah. everybody who knew him did. Um, but I'm glad we did it. It's, a, I think, a nice testament to his. He had a gift. Like that's, I think people, he made it, you'd go see Spalding, and you would think, oh, I could do that. Like, Look how easy that is, not understanding how hard it is. Yeah. And you see other people try and do it and fail, and you realize his, apart from his performance skills, His storytelling skills, his writing skills, his ability, if you understood anything about his process, his ability to synthesize his experiences into a coherent narrative was exceptional.
0: Why don't you direct an episode of Billions for Koppelman and Levine if you have spare time? I I told him
1: it's all or nothing. Like, I have to do all of it. You do the whole season? It's like, I'm on. Could you do that?
0: Could you just step into somebody else's project and like...
1: I mean, it seems like me. something you
0: would be you would have fun doing
1: absolutely my I, I almost i won't name what project this was yeah i've always had a fantasy of getting a call from somebody eight days out from shooting a movie like can you come in and like take over <laughs> like we we've had a problem like right. there's been a health issue or something like where this thing was ready to go and we're and you're out, like a temp and i'm like let's go yeah let's I, do I it i would do that in a heartbeat and it almost happened to me really yeah on a big movie but you can't say what the movie was? No, I can't. And it ended up they they ultimately decided to just table the thing. They pushed it a year and went and got like another director. But there was a like two-week period where I was in a conversation. Where it looked like I may like, fly to another country and just like walk onto the set oh and start God. shooting. And I was like, that would be awesome. It's
0: almost like an NBA coach taking, like, a coach gets fired eight days for the playoffs and you just take over, like, the Warriors.
1: Yeah, it's just, I mean, my attitude would be, you know, the fact that I'm here and we're gathering footage, like, that's a win. <laughs> so that I would feel like no pressure. To, to do anything but m- what I can do in that moment but I think you have to do one Fast Furious movie over the next 12 years just bang out one car stuff I hate car different. stuff shooting car stuff is the worst you're in those like big rigs it's just big yeah games. it's just figuring out you know, whenever I see movies that have that stuff in it, it just it just makes my head hurt I just can't I can't imagine it takes so long it's hard it takes a long time it's dangerous I don't the few times I've done stunts that stuff makes me Oof. I am not of a mind that anybody should get hurt making a movie. So uh, that uh, I, I'd, I'd be the worst, uh, I'd be the worst. You, you'd have a lot of scenes of people talking about how awesome that <laughs> thing they just did that you didn't see right, right. was, you know, I, it's, I'm not the guy, I'm not the This guy. was
0: really fun. I enjoyed the movie. When is it? It's on Netflix, February, February
1: 8th? February 8th. So you can watch that. You think then you'll the get, all-star like, game comes the next weekend.
0: You think you'll get the big top picture? Netflix, you talk to them about that? Probably for like 20 minutes.
1: You did it for like 48 hours. Yeah. Uh, look, they... I can't wait to see how it plays. They've been great. Um, they've been very positive on the film. The trailer they made, I thought was terrific. I love the little the poster art that they did. I thought it was really cool. Like, they've been super easy to deal with.
0: You also had a couple of actors in there that I just like. And it was like nice to just see them in a movie, including the lady from The Wire. Oh yeah, Sonia. Who, I just feel like she should be more stuff. Yeah. So I was like, oh, it was, it was I knew nothing about the cast. So I was excited.
1: No, anyway. and I I sent Bill Duke an email. I go every 19 years, Another we're one. gonna do something. Yeah, go, he was great. Yeah, he's awesome.
0: Cool, good luck with it. Thanks for doing this. This thanks, was great, Bill. appreciate yep. it. All right, thanks so much to uh, Steven Soderbergh. You can check out High Flying Bird on February 8th on Netflix. Thanks to Rich Paul for waiting until Monday morning to do this Anthony Davis trade request. We love, we love when this stuff happens during the week and we have everybody in the office and working. That was really nice of you, Rich Paul. Thank you. Worst case scenario would have been Saturday at like 4 p.m. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, yeah, we're back with more podcasts this week. Don't forget about the rewatchables tonight, too. Proof of life, a lot of Russell Crowe conversation, a lot of Caruso. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite ones that we've done. So check that one out until then.